Uh, joy to be here with you. Can I push this away since I'm using this one? Okay, very good. Some people would call today a Super Sunday. Um, I think uh, every Sunday is super. This one may be super duper if you're, uh, if you're a Chiefs fan or a 49ers fan. And uh, some of us will be excited about that. I'll be one of them. Uh, Pat, Patrick Holmes, uh, fairly well known to have been a Red Raider, Texas Tech University uh, uh, student and quarterback. And I've, uh, I've been a Red Raider fan since I taught there for nearly 10 years in campus ministry, and I was considered an associate minister at the Broadway Church. Um, so, uh, you know, lots of connections there. Mark Lanier, who is my dear friend uh, and uh, boss, we could call him, <laughs> employer, I'm still working for him. He was a college, he was a high school kid when I met him and I was doing campus ministry at Texas Tech. Uh, he likes to call the Chiefs the Texas Tech Chiefs, but because of Mahomes' connection there, we'll, we'll uh, forgive him for that. Uh, it is a great day and it's a great day to continue your theme. I think you're doing a theme, at least Alan told me if he's not mixed up, a theme about prayer. So, wow, how many sermons could be preached on that every Sunday of this year and then into to many more? But I've chosen a theme today that will connect with your, your uh, emphasis on prayer. Let's think about prayer. Let's ask what it is. Uh, prayer is a familiar topic. Uh, if you've read the Bible at all, you know uh, quite a bit about it. Uh, it's so familiar, in fact, that it's difficult to preach about because your mind will race ahead. <laughs> You will race to the conclusions that you've already drawn. Your habits are already uh, in force and they're hard to be changed. I want to challenge you, though, today to think about some changes that you can make in your prayer life that will be not only a glory to God, but also an obedience to His Word, and it will be a tremendous and incredible blessing to you. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 17 and 18, pray without ceasing. NIV says, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, uh, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As a kid and even uh, a teenager, I would wonder, how can I pray all the time? It's impossible. I learned early on that I better keep my eyes closed when I pray. There's a lot of things I can't do <laughs> that I shouldn't do with my eyes closed. Of course, it wasn't too much later that I figured out who's going to be looking at me with their eyes open when I should have my eyes closed. You know, the drill. You figure out you don't have to have your eyes closed. A prayer is so much more, a bigger umbrella than just when you're bowed with your head down and your eyes closed. Or maybe you look up and, and uh, give glory to God in prayer. Prayer is a much uh, larger, by definition, thing than most of us tend to think. I mean, so many of my brethren in the past have been so rigid about it, they've thought that prayer is only this one time that somebody's leading us in an assembly like this, and that was one of the five acts of worship, and you better not uh, breach that over into another or blend it with another part. Of course, every time we sing, every song today is a praise to God. It's a prayer to God. It's giving Him glory and praise. Can you pray without words? When you pray, do you have to use a special prayer language? I grew up with a guide, guard, and direct you. Anybody remember that phrase? 
Everybody used that phrase, phrase in my church when I was growing up in Vernon, Texas. Everybody used that phrase. <clears throat> I tripped on it too. Uh, <laughs> but I noticed my dad didn't. My dad was the preacher at that church. It, it was called Houston and Pease Street Church of Christ. And by the way, this church building is just like it. <laughs> I, I, I walked in here years ago after it had been renovated. Uh, I was visiting Lynn Mitchell. And I remembered immediately that I sat on that pew, right that second pew, just to the right of the aisle, every Sunday for eight years in Vernon, Texas. My dad preached, and he could keep an eye on me. Me and my friends who were, you know, teens or actually fourth grade and, and up through high school. And uh, with one look, he could correct us all <laughs> in the midst of preaching. <laughs> Let me tell you a story that I like. Teenage boy was, about, was getting ready for a first date with a girl that he really liked. So he goes to the candy store and he, he wants to buy a $5 box, a $10 box, and a $20 box of candy. The owner of the store says to him, why, why do you want three? And he said, well... If I, if I just get a, a handshake at the end of the date, I'm going to give her a $5 box of candy. If I get a quick kiss on the cheek, I'm going to give her the $10 box of candy. If I get a real kiss, I'm going to give her a $20 box of candy. So he, uh, he gets all ready for his date. He goes to the door of the girl's house. He knocks on the door. And... Uh, uh, they invite him immediately, unexpectedly, to come in to have dinner with them before they go out. And, of course, he's going to agree because that's not going to go down well if he didn't. They sit down at the table, and he's invited to lead the prayer. So he begins to pray, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays about the weather, about the, the creation, about the, everything imaginable. At the end of the prayer... The girl leaned over to him and whispered, I had no idea you were so spiritual. And he answered back, I had no idea your dad owned a candy store. <laughs> you saw that coming. But it brings up the question, is a good prayer a long prayer? Not necessarily. Does it make you more spiritual if you pray for a long time? Maybe, maybe not. Jesus prayed, you know, all night before he selected the apostles. He still got Judas. <laughs> but that long prayer was very efficacious. There's no question about it. Jesus got up early in the morning to pray. So much that he did, so much he did that, that his own family thought he had lost his mind. There's a story in the, in the book of Mark where they come and confront him as if he's lost his equilibrium and they're worried about him but Jesus is so devoted to prayer how would you define prayer uh, so many ways and there's so much teaching about it um, here's my definition and it's pretty broad it is exhibiting an attitude before God which recognizes his greatness and my lowliness I am willing to lose myself in his purposes and be used in accomplishing His will, loving Him and, in turn, loving my neighbors, my fellow man. It's an attitude. It may not demand words. In fact, how many times have many of us been in prayer, but we didn't 
know what to say. In fact, the pain was so deep that we only got groans and sighs out of our mouth. And Romans 8 promises that the, that the Holy Spirit translates those for God. We can pray without words. We don't even have to have groans or sighs. It is an attitude that we have when we come before God recognizing His greatness and our lowliness. God's Word insists that we pray. Jesus teaches that we pray. So many others model prayer for us. The early church's example compels us to pray. But an Orthodox Muslim, if he's converted to Christianity and told to imitate a U.S. citizen, will cut back from praying five times a day. He might pray twice and he might pray once and he might pray less than once a day. It's a sad commentary on us that we pretty much neglected prayer. And so my question for you in the outset is, why don't we pray more? Why don't we pray? Is it because we're too lazy? In some cases. Is it because we're too busy? Yes. Is it because we've been disappointed before with God's answers or lack thereof, it seemed like, or delay? Is it because we're not ready for the commitment that genuine prayer would compel us to make? Is it because, fill in the blank, we're not in a crisis, uh, we don't have a special need? Bottom line is, very often, we don't need God. And so why do we need to pray? We've taken care of the bills. We worked hard. We earned the money. We had it in the bank, whether they're making a draft or whether we're writing a check, hardly ever. You know, paying the card, whatever. Have we become practical atheists? When anybody looks at our prayer lives, and of course I'm not asking you to expose yours, have we become practical atheists, meaning that we don't need God, we pray to Him only when we're in crisis or when a family member is in dire health crisis. Perhaps it would help if we knew more about what the Bible teaches about prayer. But honestly, I've found that knowing and doing are two separate things. <laughs> we can know a whole lot more than we act on, than we're motivated to do. Let me just be honest and say we all need help. <laughs> we all need constant encouragement to have a prayer-igniting faith. To be reminded that it's God who provides every morsel of food, every breath, as we sang this morning. It's God who gives us every heartbeat. It's God who directs us in our lives if we're attuned at all to His guidance. It is God to whom we owe everything. He's not just a doctrine, I hope for you. I hope He's a living deity. I hope you don't relegate His activities in our world to ancient times. Yes, He was there parting the Red Sea. He was there down through the ages with the prophets, Joshua and all the leaders, Moses for sure, David, even in his sinfulness. God was there. God is still active today, but we have to desire to see His activity, to pray for that activity. 
I want to share some scriptures with you this morning. I hope you brought your Bible. If you didn't, pull out your phone, and I'll dare you to resist email and text messaging. Look to Bible Gateway or whatever you use to find the scriptures that I'm going to give you. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll read it to you. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The writer of Hebrews, and by the way, not many of us know who that was. <laughs> in fact, uh, the best comment on the Hebrews author is, only God knows. All right, God does know, no question about it. Some think Paul, some think Barnabas, some think Apollos. On and on the suggestions are made. It doesn't really matter. Hebrews was recognized early on as a canonical book. That means it measured up to the apostolic teaching. It measured up to the acceptance by the early church as inspired by God. Here's what the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 4, 14, writes. Therefore, he says, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let's pause. Because of Jesus, because of his role as high priest, because he's ascended into heaven, let us hold firm to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Watch this verse, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne, and throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. A longer reading perhaps, but I hope you caught this. It is because of who Jesus is that we pray, and we pray in a certain way. I'm going to share with you several passages this morning, and when we put these together, I'm going to show you that there are three reasons that the Scriptures, in the New Testament at least, in these Scriptures, there are three reasons why we are instructed to pray boldly. Do you think about your own prayer life in terms of boldness? There's a Greek word, parousia, which is found in all the passages that I'm sharing with you this morning. It's not, they're not the only passages, but these are what I feel like are the key passages that help, it un, help us understand God's insistence, His command on our life, that we pray boldly. The word parousia can be translated fearlessness. It can be translated openness. It can be translated daring. It can be translated clarity. It can be translated freedom. But I especially like the translation that calls for us to pray with boldness. And so we look for that word in, in these uh, passages. Don't confuse it with, if you know Greek, don't confuse it with parousia, which is the second coming the return of Christ to the earth. Paresia, paresia, it, it means boldness and fearlessness. And in the passage of Hebrews 4, the writer calls for us to, with confidence, with boldness, approach the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and grace. We're going to talk about those in a moment. But Ephesians 3, verse 12, is another passage that uses this wonderful word. Paul writes, in him, that is Christ, and through faith in him, that is Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. There it is again. 
We can approach God with freedom and boldness and daring, fearlessness. We can approach God not, not ever shaking our fist in his face. But if you did it, God could handle it. You read the prophets of the Old Testament and you'll think you're looking at a prophet who is shaking his fist in God's face. If you're reading Habakkuk, more often they're just questioning God. They're anxious about the situation. They don't know what to do and where to turn. And so they are crying out in great transparency, God, where are you? I need you. I need you now, like we, we sang earlier. We don't pray boldly um, often enough because very often we're thinking we don't deserve God's answer. We don't deserve his attention. No, we don't. No, but he gives it. And his love is unfathomable. It's predictable. It's always there. He calls us to receive his love, and because of that, we can approach his throne with confidence. It's because of who Jesus is. That's the first reason for bold prayer. Jesus. We have such a Savior, such a Savior who invites us to receive his mercy and grace that we can, pull, that we can pray with boldness. We don't do that very often because we're not focused on Jesus, on his teachings, on his prayer life, on his lifestyle, on his uh, model, his example to us. Think about it with me. How long has it been since you read the Gospels and just focused on Jesus, what he did, how he did it, how he reached out to the crowds, how he dealt with Judas, how he answered Pilate. Every time that you see Jesus in a conflict of some kind, in a challenge, in a, in a tough situation, you know that he's been praying about it before it happened. He fought the battle the night before or weeks before in his prayer life. He fought those battles so that he could win the victory. And he does win the victory, whether it's with Judas or Pilate or the crowds or those who were trying to entrap him with questions. Jesus is the primary revelation, the primary source of revelation about God. When you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. Jesus said to the apostles, you know, if you see me, you see the Father. Uh, you look at Jesus with children, you see the approachability of God. You look at Jesus with his apostles who were just constantly bickering about who's first and who's great. It's amazing <laughs> that they could do that over and over in, in their little sessions together and Jesus could overhear them. Even at the Last Supper, they're talking about who's the greatest. When you see Jesus with those guys and all of us, you see God's patience. When you see Jesus with uh, the adulterous woman, you see God's forgiveness. When you see Jesus on the cross, you see God's sacrificial love. It is the Savior, Jesus Christ, who invites us to his grace and mercy that prompts us to pray boldly. Number two, the reason number two is because we have such assurance as we have in Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, 13 says this, I write these things to you, John the Apostle writing, I'm writing to you who believe in the, in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
I don't want you to think you have eternal life. I don't want you to wonder if you have eternal life. I want you to know that you have eternal life. And that's why I'm writing 1 John. He goes on to say, this is the confidence, parousia. This is the boldness. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Years ago it hit me that uh, <clears throat> while those in the restoration movement very often emphasize a message that we weren't uh, once saved, always saved. We countered the message once saved, always saved. But we swung to the other extreme which was if saved, barely saved. Anybody felt that way before? <laughs> right before that drunk driver hit you, better get that prayer out, right? Because if you don't, if saved, barely saved. No, I think John the Apostle would have something very strong to say to us along the lines that says, I want you to know. Whether you're 12 years old and dealing with the challenges of that age or later in teens, or whether you're like me, 78, and you're thinking, well, the Lord gave me another day. <laughs> Amen. Let me live it to His glory. I've been through a battle with cancer. God saved me. I've been through wounded parenthood for many, many years. And God is saving me. God wants us to know the assurance of salvation. And because of that assurance, I think He wants to motivate us to pray boldly. In uh, 1 John chapter 3, that's just two chapters earlier than the previous passage, 1 John 3, 21, John writes, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We have boldness, we have fearlessness before God, and we receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commands and we do what pleases Him. And this is the, His command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. Now, these passages challenge us to pray with confidence, with boldness, and, and they call us to pray according to His will. What does that mean? Does that mean that uh, I stick a footnote on at the end of the prayer that says timidly, if it's your will? I don't really think it's your will, but if it's your will, would you do this for me? No, I don't think so. I think there are so many times that we can know God's will, and we can claim God's will, and we can pray about it with boldness, not ever thinking that we know more than God knows, but giving our heart to God, being willing to live in His purposes and to be lost in His will. Gratitude for what we used to sing about. I hope you still sing about Blessed Assurance now and then. I should have asked for that song today. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. You know that old wonderful song? Blessed Assurance, that is a prompting for bold prayer. And finally, number three, you thought I'd never get there. Revel uh, re reason number three, I'm, I'm calling you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, okay? Listening for the pages. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 
Now, I've got to give you the context of that passage. Paul is writing, uh, 2 Corinthians, generally speaking, is an answer by Paul to his critics. He is really under a heavy load of criticism. There are people who are discrediting him, not wanting to recognize his authority as an apostle, and, and they would literally uh, take him out of his role in leadership of the Corinthian church, a church that he loved dearly. The church had all kinds of problems. 1 Corinthians reveals the divisions that are there, the different leaders, the loyalties to leaders, and Paul calls them to Christ, to unity in Christ. There's problem of sexual sin. There's problems of lawsuits among brethren. There's all kinds of problems in that church. But when you get to 2 Corinthians, you get a window into the heart of Paul because it's here that Paul is responding to his critics. How will he do it? Well, if you read 2 Corinthians, you know how he did it. <laughs> he did it with passion. He did it with uh, a fairly aggressive attitude. He did it with uh, confidence and with boldness. He answered the critics. But yet at the same time, he exhibited humility, I believe, in calling the Corinthians to find hope not in him, not in his authority, but in Jesus Christ again. The hope that we have because of the cross, because of the sacrifice. Uh, Paul goes on to say in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and following, he says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, this takes us back to a scene in Exodus 34, where Moses is coming down from the mountain, and because he's been in the presence of God, his face is shining so brightly that the Aaron and the people didn't know what to do. It's like Get a, you know, uh, we can't see. We're being blinded by the, the, the bright lights here. Later, Moses wore a veil, and repeatedly this happened, that his face was shining so brightly from the presence of, of God that he needed a veil. Paul goes on, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is boldness. There is fearlessness in the presence of the Lord. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. <laughs> Does it ever occur to you that you can reflect the glory of the Lord? Yes, I hope so. And day by day you're being transformed to be able to reflect even more, ever increasing, every day increasing to show the glory of the Lord. Are we free? Do we have that freedom to be totally transparent with God, to open our hearts to Him and to claim what we know is His will? There's no question He wants your family to know Christ and to be saved by the blood of Jesus. Agreed? That's God's will. So when we pray for God's will for our family, every time Kay and I pray, 57 and a half years now, every time we pray since we've been parents, we pray for those precious kids. And now for the grandkids and a couple of great grandkids, we pray for them to know God's love. And we pray boldly that while we may not be the ambassadors, we may not be able to carry that message to them personally, 
God will find a way. God will find a carrier. God will find a Paul who's blinded by the light on the road to Damascus. God will intervene. God will interrupt. God will supervise, if you please, and coordinate the effort to bring his love to those people. But I pray for so many more than them. And I want to pray it with boldness. What a Savior. What assurance. And what hope we have in Jesus Christ. If, uh, if mercy is not receiving the punishment that we deserve, and if grace is receiving the blessings that we don't deserve, I believe that, I agree with that definition for grace and mercy, then let's go back to that Hebrews 4 passage again and remind you and me that with fearlessness, because of who Jesus is, we can pray boldly to claim the grace and the mercy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these reminders in your word of uh, your instruction. Not just because you have a rule for us that ought to be obeyed, but because you love us. And you know that this is best for us. And we trust you, Father, in your love to direct us in the way that will satisfy, that will bring joy, and that will impel us through life to serve others and to find blessing and to give blessing. Father, we want to pray more often. We want to pray with genuineness. We want to pray without hypocrisy. We want to pray persistently. But most of all today, we pray that you would help us <laughs> to pray boldly, with confidence, with transparency, with clarity. Bless us to do that, Father, this week we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.